We'll carry on. So, uh, a question that I ask myself, why don't we focus on the heart or on sanctification much in the modern church? And I think one of the reasons is that often the gospel that we hear preached is primarily focused around personal salvation. So Jesus died for your sins in your place. He's taken the punishment that you deserve so that one day you can go to heaven rather than go to hell. Okay. Is that good news? Absolutely it is. But it's focused around avoiding punishment from God for your sin and saving us from like a really, really bad future. Um, that's a good thing. As I said, that is good news. But the focus is so intently on you are bad, God is good, pray a prayer, or you're going to hell. That expression of the gospel is also important to understand. It's only like a couple of hundred years old. That, that focus in on what some might call substitutionary, penal substitutionary and atonement. So, yeah, you know the one. Uh, I'm too tired to say it properly. Um, but essentially, it's all around God paying the price for your sin so that you don't suffer the ultimate eternal consequences of that. God has set a standard so high that you could never attain. So he comes in the form of man to be the sacrifice on our behalf so that we can avoid the punishment of eternal torment. But when we start our journey with Jesus, with this as the primary focus, it can end up receiving the majority of our attention. So the focus of our relationship with God comes around avoiding punishment. The gospel that we preach to the world is you've got to stop doing those things, otherwise God's going to punish you. Which, I mean, I think there's a whole lot of implications of how people view the church because of that. Now, again, I'm not saying that those aren't realities, but I am saying it's not, it isn't the gospel that Jesus preached. He proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom, which was the good news that his kingdom is being established on the earth, and he invites you to come and experience and live in this new reality of his kingdom. Okay? Without the cross and the resurrection, there is no entrance in. That is the doorway, it is the blessing, it is unimaginably, unfathomably wonderful and amazing, and we are so undeserving of that. But when we, when we proclaim to people, this is what it's all about, is you avoiding eternal punishment and one day going to this place called heaven. It doesn't set people up on a trajectory towards becoming disciples of Jesus and being renewed and transformed into the likeness of Christ. Because essentially, the ultimate thing that I need, I got when I came forward and I prayed that prayer, the sinner's prayer, which also isn't in the Bible. Um, I've got to say something a bit bit naughty tonight. It's not naughty, it's true, but I'm just saying. Um, So the invitation of Jesus to follow him is therefore not about intimacy or relationship, transformation and restoration. It's about getting out from underneath God's mighty hammer of anger and wrath and staying there. Don't fall back in, you know. Try really hard to not sin because you don't know, maybe he hasn't fully paid the price for all of your sin because there's that one that you could do that you're not aware of that'll get you back under the hammer. Is there a punishment for sin? Yes. Did Jesus die in our place for our sin? Yes. Did he rise again so we can walk in new life? Yes. And then what? Where do we go from there? Where do we go from that moment of encounter with God at the cross, the finished work of Jesus, the price paid for our sin? Now, now where do we go? How now shall we live? Are we now just waiting around for him to return or for us to die? Or have we missed something in our understanding of what Jesus was actually inviting us into when he called us to follow him? It's what Jesus did with the disciples. It's what Jesus does with us. He says, hey, you, come and follow me. I've chosen you to follow me. He's invited us to become disciples and discipleship is all about becoming like the one that you're following. Again, we don't really have a framework for discipleship in our culture. 
Um, but there was a culture of discipleship that existed in Jewish culture. And understanding some of that, I think, helps us to understand, cool, so what is this process that I'm now on with Jesus? Is I'm on this journey of becoming like him. It's wonderful, it's beautiful. I've got uh, from, a, from an article here. It says, every first century Jew knew that the scriptures had authority over all aspects of life. God may have been a mystery to them, but behavior was not. And furthermore, it was scrupulous behavior, not the condition of your heart that defined a righteous person. Thus, many Jews had a desire to honor God by doing all the right things. In the world of Pharisaism, rabbis were the teachers who had been given the authoritative role to interpret interpret God's word for the living of a righteous life, defining what behavior would or would not please God. This is really interesting to understand. The law to a Jewish person, we think of the law as this unattainable, unreachable thing, and because we couldn't reach it, therefore we are deserved of death and punishment because of our sin, because we didn't reach it, but Jesus paid the price for that. It's not how a Jew viewed the law. They they weren't concerned about going to hell, because they were God's chosen people. So eternal salvation wasn't on their radar. The law to them was, it's like the bullseye on a target. And then that's what it looks like to live the perfect life for God, the most righteous, amazing, awesome life for God. And we honor God, so we want to live, we want to hit the bullseye. So we follow these laws, these hundreds of laws, in order to live this life, this perfect life to honor the Lord. So they weren't trying to do it to earn salvation from God because they had it. They were born into that reality. So if a rabbi agreed to a would-be disciple's request and allowed him to become a disciple... The disciple to be agreed to totally submit to the rabbi's authority in all areas of interpreting the scriptures for his life. This was a cultural given for all observant Jewish young men, something each truly wanted to do. It was their desire to become a disciple and to follow a rabbi. As a result, each disciple came to a rabbinic relationship with a desire and a willingness to do just that, surrender to the authority of God's word as interpreted by his rabbi's view of scripture. In the dynamics of this intimate discipling community, all of a disciple's daily life was was observable by the rabbi. A disciple would expect the rabbi's consistent and persistent question of them, why did you do that? The emphasis was always on behavior formation, not just on imparting of wisdom and related interpretive information. In this interactive manner, the rabbi's function to clear up gray areas of understanding and difficult areas of textual interpretation for their disciples. By always asking questions, the rabbis were concentrating on developing discernment in the mind of the disciple, not the imparting of how-to formulas. While not overtly required, disciples invariably had a deep desire to emulate their rabbi. This often included imitating how their rabbi ate, how they observed the Sabbath, what they liked and disliked, as well as their mannerisms, prejudices and preferences. That wasn't meant to be a disciple of a rabbi. As we are called into a discipling relationship with Jesus, he calls us disciples, we are disciples and we are disciple makers. Our whole life is intended to emulate the one that we are following. If we start with pray this prayer, get out from under the hammer, good, now what? Oh, well, now you've got, like, you've got to go on a Sunday and you've got to read your Bible and you've got to pray and you've got to tithe and you've got to do these things, okay? All right, cool, that's, that's, that's the Christian life. Done. Try not to be a bad person in public. <laughs> you know, like it becomes, and so we just kind of fall into, into this kind of cultural thing that we do now. Like I, I go different places on a Sunday, I guess. I was... Used to go out for brunch with my friends. Now I go to a church service on a Sunday. Like that's how cool my life is so radically transformed. Um, (laughs) But if we understand Jesus' invitation, it's like, hey, you come and follow me. I'm like, okay, well, well, where are we going, Jesus? Hey, we're going on a journey. But it's not just, it's the destination isn't the place that we're going. The destination is you becoming like me. So for us as Jesus' disciples, our life is focused around becoming more like him, to learn his ways, to listen to his instruction, and to emulate him in every way. But unlike the disciple-rabbi relationship in Jesus' time, our rabbi lives inside of us. 
and he doesn't desire external emulation, but rather internal transformation, which inevitably leads to outward expression. We are not to just act like Jesus or speak like Jesus or talk like Jesus. We are to become like Jesus. This is a radical concept. It's why Jesus said, it's better that I go, which I've, I struggle to understand. Like, if you could say, hey, would you like Jesus to live and walk beside you or have the Holy Spirit? I think I would choose Jesus. And I'm sure the disciples would have said the same thing. But he said, no, it's actually far better that I go so that I can send the Spirit, my Spirit, to come and dwell inside of you. The Spirit of truth, which will lead you into all truth. But this is amazing reality that we have the very spirit of God dwelling in us. And the point is to change us and transform us to become the best disciple that we could possibly be, which is one who looks like the rabbi that they're following. Because you imagine a rabbi with his disciples, it becomes this generational thing. So then they come and they become rabbis and then they have disciples and it carries on this particular rabbi's teaching, which then goes from generation to generation. That's what we get invited into with Jesus. And this is why Jesus brought the accusation against the religious. We know in Matthew 23, 25, he says, you know, woe to you scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. Woe to you scribes and Pharisees, you're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. Jesus challenged the religious leaders of the day because they had this external form of religiosity or purity or righteousness. But internally, things were all messed up. Jesus could see it and he cared about it. And to the point he explains, if you just clean the inside, the outside would become clean. If you just actually dealt with what's going on internally, then your behavior is going to change. But we live, we're so conformed to perform externally for other people's acceptance oftentimes because we want to belong, we want to be seen to to be something. And it's this exhaustive pattern that we can get caught in trying to be who we think other people want us to be or maybe who God wants us to be. But we know on the inside it's not coming out of a place of desire for him. It's coming out of a place of desire to, to be loved or to be accepted. And it's an exhausting way to live. Second Corinthians 3.18. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory and are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory. We are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the spirit. 2 Corinthians 5, 16 to 21 talks about we are a new creation. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has gone, the new is here. So the new creation reality is here. It is a now reality. It's not a one day reality. It's not a when Jesus returns reality. It's a now done, finished work, new creation work reality. But our job is to live in that reality. Verse 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Why? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God's desire is that you would become his righteousness. Matthew 6.33, seek first the kingdom of God and righteousness. Don't get caught up worrying about all of those everyday things. Seek first the kingdom and righteousness. And this is the beautiful thing. It says, this is, he's, if he's talking to believers, he's saying, keep going after righteousness. Too often, our, our Christian walk is about avoiding unrighteousness. Don't do bad things. But God's like, no, no, do good things. Don't just avoid unrighteousness. Pursue righteousness. Go after righteousness. Well, how do I go after righteousness? Look in the place where unrighteousness exists. It's in your heart. You deal with those things, all of a sudden you're going to start producing good fruit from your life. And not good fruit that's just externally, these whitewashed tombs or these kind of clean plates and cups, you know, that that Jesus is talking about with the Pharisees here. But there's actually a genuine overflow of that. 
that you can't behave any other way, that you find yourself in a scenario where maybe in the past you would have got really angry and now you just exude peace and calm. And you're like, I'm behaving so differently in this scenario and I'm not choosing to, it's just what overflows from me. You know, I've said many times, Jesus didn't wear a what would Jesus do bracelet. If anyone remembers, some of you might be too young to even know what they are. I had one. He never had to question, what would Jesus do in this scenario? He just lived out of himself. That's who he is. Jesus always did. I mean, he did what he saw the Father doing, but he was also, you know, the exact imprint of his nature. So, you know what I'm saying. But that's, that's where we're moving towards, We're moving towards being transformed into his image, this ever-increasing glorious reality of being transformed into the image of Jesus. It's it's an amazing supernatural work that God is doing. So we're a new creation in our spirit. 1 Corinthians 6.17 says, He who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Your spirit and Holy Spirit have become one. Like in, a, like in a marriage covenant. Did everyone know that? It's amazing. I came across that scripture. That's amazing. <clears throat> so we are a new creation in spirit, but the rest of us is being renewed. 2 Corinthians 4.16, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Philippians 2, 12 to 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is a really significant scripture and because I, I love how it ends. Because again, we, when we come to that when we move beyond the point of like, God's angry with me, but Jesus has stood in the way and saved me from God crushing me. So, but who am I now to God? What does my sin and my brokenness mean to him? Because he's like, well, the price has been paid. It's still there. You can still partner with it. You can still give life to it. But now out of God's good pleasure, you and I, I'm going to work this stuff out. We're going to take this beautiful moment of salvation. We're going to see it actually weaved throughout your entire life so it starts to produce this wonderful, beautiful, glorious fruit. It's God's good pleasure to do this journey. Again, too often we, we want to avoid looking into those places. Oh, because that could be dirty. It could be gross. It's so dark in, in those places. I don't even want to look at it. And God's like, well, I want to look at it. Because I'm not afraid to look at, to, to see those sin, the sin in your life, to see those broken places. It's like the difference between, you know, in, in Jewish ceremonial law to, if you were touched by an unclean person, like a, a, a leper, you would become unclean. You'd have to go and ceremonially wash yourself and get baptized to cleanse yourself of that. Jesus comes on the scene. All of a sudden, when an unclean person touches him, what happens? They become clean. That's the work of God in you now is to say, I want to touch all of those unclean places and make them clean. But you've got to invite me into that space. You've got to to invite me to partner with you to bring that change and that transformation. You can shut God out of your heart. You can keep God at a distance. No, thank you, Jesus. I'll do it on my own. You You can become like the Galatians 3 church. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? You started out by the Spirit, and now you're trying to be perfected in the flesh? Strong words by the Apostle Paul. It's foolish to think, well, yeah, no, I mean, Jesus did all of that bit, oh, but now I'm stuck with this brokenness in my life that I can't get rid of. I guess, well, thankfully, you know, Jesus paid the price for my sin because I'm going to have to live with this crappy stuff forever. Surely not. The problem is we, we leave him behind and we try and go on and, and fight through it on our own. That's where we get stuck. There is a huge difference between transformation and behavior modification. And I think too many of us have experienced a, a, a drive towards behavior modification. And I want to tell you, as a pastor of a church community, 
I would much rather people not do dumb stuff. <laughs> It'd make my life a whole lot easier, our pastoral care, a whole lot easier. If you just stop doing dumb stuff, stop sinning, stop doing silly things, be easier. But the reality is, it's not the case. The reality is the church is a hospital <laughs> which should embrace broken people and to create a safe space, not for us to just thrive in our brokenness, but to actually say, hey, uh, there's some stuff that's gone wrong here and it needs to be a safe place where I can be broken and be raw and be, be revealed. And that's what we, we love here. <laughs> it, doesn't, it makes it a whole lot harder, but a whole lot more life-giving, a whole lot more fruitful, a whole lot more satisfying to actually see people real and raw and, and putting it all out on the table because we're not afraid. This is the thing. If you don't have tools to fix something, then you kind of, it's like my mum in the car and she'd be driving and she'd hear a noise and her answer was, turn up the radio. <laughs> and I think a lot of Christians are driving around just turning up the radio to avoid some funky clunking sound coming from, you know, from inside the engine bay. So just turn up this, turn up, just avoid, just make, create more noise so I can avoid this. Broken relationship to broken relationship, just turn up the volume. Sin, stuck in bondage, can't get over this thing, dysfunction, bad fruit coming out, just turn up the volume and hopefully it goes away. If I avoid it for long enough, maybe it'll go away. The problem is the longer you avoid it, the worse it gets. So oftentimes people who, who will run away from their problems. And the issue is it's really hard to run away from a problem if you're the problem. <laughs> like I'm really good at keeping pace with myself. <laughs> like I, keep, I turn around and I'm still there following me everywhere that I go. But again, if, if there's tools, then we can say, yeah, we can get it all out on the table. And it's, this is, we're not talking about eternal salvation here. We're talking about being the kind of people that produce good fruit for Jesus, that look like him and, and get to be that expression of Christ on the earth. So it, it shifts that whole perspective. It's like, man, we want to be a people who are vulnerable. We want to be a people who are real about where we're struggling because it's only when we bring that out that we can actually work together with one another and with God to, to, to heal those places to restore those places. So behavior modification is where we learn what is acceptable in our Christian culture and we adhere to those rules in order to belong and be accepted. Heart transformation is where we are transformed on the inside to become a different person, which then naturally is revealed in our behaviors. And again, when, we, when we're dealing with our heart, we're dealing with identity issues, then we come to that place where we actually don't care what people think. I care what God thinks and I know what God thinks about me. It doesn't mean I don't listen to other people who might be giving me feedback about bad fruit in my life, but I'm not doing it for their acceptance anymore. I'm not even doing it for God's acceptance anymore because I'm... I've looked in my heart and I've realized I didn't know what it was to be accepted by a father because my father rejected me. But now I've been healed from that wound and I can receive acceptance from my heavenly father, which means I can receive acceptance from other people because that wound that I've been carrying around, that I've been blaming on every person who hasn't given me what I needed from them, all of a sudden that wound is gone. And I can be at peace in relationship with people. And I can actually enjoy it and receive the blessing of God being my heavenly father. That's what Jesus has to offer. But we have to take the time and we have to do the journey and we have to do that scary journey of actually looking in at what's out of order on the inside. So the benefit of transformation is that I can never revert to old ways because I'm no longer that old person. I can't, if, if I've been transformed, I can't behave like I used to. Well, that would be weird for me to act like that because I'm not that person anymore. The gospel that Jesus preached was about restoration, not just salvation. What we're saved into rather than what we're just saved from. Often the gospel we preach offers people deliverance from the guilt of sin, but not freedom from the daily impact and bondage of sin. Jesus came to set people free. He, he revealed it. He didn't just say, I've come so that one day when you die, you'll be free from the ailments that you're experiencing here on earth. Yeah, pray this prayer 
30 years time, you're going to die and you'll be free from that demon. No, no, it was right there and then. Because that's what it looked like for the kingdom of God to come crashing into that space, for the lordship of Jesus to be expressed and revealed, was for it to happen then and there. Now, again, I know there are realities that, uh, that are now and not yet, and, and I don't know what gets put in either of those baskets. I know there's some stuff that's for the future, but I would rather be bold to have an expectation that God's going to do it today, and then he doesn't do it, rather than to say, ah, oh, that must just be for future, and not actually cry out and pursue the things of God, the, the, the revealing of his kingdom on earth. Because that was his prayer, which he gave to us as our prayer. My kingdom come, my will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I think most Christians want to live free from sin in their daily lives, but they try and they try and it doesn't seem to work. So we're left with either hiding our sin, denying our sin, or living in constant guilt and shame because of our sin. Or some people just get so tired they just run head on into their sin if jesus died to set us free from the power of sin then why are we still living in sin it's because we're allowing it to exist romans 8 verse 2 the law of the spirit of life has set you free in christ from the law of sin and death Romans 6, 17, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Verse 18, and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. I've got probably another like 14 pages, but I might leave it there. I'm hoping that's kind of enough. I'm just... yeah, I think I said in the break, it's like try to cram 12 years of, of a journey with God into um, like an hour and a half is difficult. But I'm hoping that you got um, kind of an overview of, of God's desire and perspective. We haven't got even into the tools as to how God does this. And again, it's not some extra biblical things. It's, it's really, it's, all, it's primarily around repentance and renouncing. It's all found in the scriptures, but... <clears throat> The fact is, and this is one of the things that really stood out to me when I did the Elijah House teaching, was that there are laws of God's kingdom that exist and operate today. And we've been taught, hey, we're not under the law, we're under grace. Absolutely. We're not under the requirement of the old covenant law. But we are under the laws of the kingdom that still exist today. Forgiveness or unforgiveness, laws of judgment, laws of sowing and reaping, there are still laws that exist in God's kingdom, even in that passage of Rome, the law of the spirit of life. There are still laws and ways that the kingdom operates that if you violate those laws, there are consequences of those things. So we need to be paying attention. And for me, I'm like, of of course, there's things that Jesus taught. He said, if you do this, then this will happen. If you don't forgive, then you'll be bound in unforgiveness. It's like, okay, yeah, that's, that's new covenant reality. And so we need to understand that God has a righteous uh, a, a requirement to, to fulfill his laws in order to live in his kingdom, okay? And we're not talking about eternal salvation. So we say, oh, okay, if I, if I sow bad fruit, uh, or I sow bad seed and I get bad fruit, oh, God's going to kick me out of the kingdom. Not at all. It's just you're not going to experience the abundance of life in the kingdom because he's designed it to operate in a particular way. But I want to open up to questions. We have a mic. Nicole's got a mic, so she'll pass it to you so we can hear on the recording. Off the top of your head, because I'll listen again if you can't. That's um, You said, my spirit and Holy Spirit become one. It was uh, in Corinthians. Mm-hmm. That scripture, please. Yep. 1 Corinthians 6.17. Brad was just um, talking about <clears throat> fruit as mm-hmm. as um, an indicator of, you know, your walk with Christ. And um, just if you can touch, you know, a couple of weeks ago you did a, a, a summation on kind of a performance orientation. Just my observations over the last 30, 35 years. So often as Christians now we can walk 
this journey um, doing good things, but not necessarily God things. Um, and those good things could be bad fruit, depending on what the motivation of, of doing those things are. Could you just maybe kind of um, explain that just, you know, quickly? Yeah. So performance orientation is actually one of the teachings of Elijah House where they cover that, uh, but it's, it's deeply inherent in our culture, uh, secular and Christian culture, which is essentially um, my acceptance is based upon my performance. So if I, if I do well, I'm, a good, I'm good. If I do bad, I'm bad. So it's kind of actions attached to identity. Um, one of the realities that I've experienced is that a lot of Christians are bound by performance. They don't fully understand the finished work of Christ. They also don't know the, the transformative work of the Holy Spirit in their hearts. Um, but then we, we're bound to try and perform for people's acceptance or for God's acceptance. So I do lots of good things in order that, that I would be accepted and loved and feel like I'm belonging. Okay? So the fact is that's a brokenness in our heart. So it could be a rejection wound, some sort of trauma, uh, not being nurtured as a child, not being hugged or touched or being touched inappropriately, all of these things that might create some sense within us, a belief system that says, if I don't do the right thing, then I'm not right. So I have to do the right thing. I have to be a good person. I have to show up early and I have to stay late and I have to give my best in all of these ways because if I don't, then I'm a bad person. If I don't, people will reject me. So what you're seeing is somebody doing all of this great stuff, yet it's coming out of a place of brokenness in them because they're actually they're longing for acceptance from God and from people and they think they're going to find it in their performance. The issue with performance orientation, it's like a, a, a rat wheel. You run as fast as you can, you never get anywhere um, because you can, you'll never actually receive. You need healing on the inside, um, not for someone to come and, and meet your need. But I think within the church, there are... I would say the modern kind of the modern expression of church, especially the, the larger churches get and the more you know volunteer armies and all of that sort of stuff, I think inevitably a whole lot of people in that um, environment would be expressing good things from out of a place of brokenness, which means we're building the church on the backs of broken people, which is which is really sad to think about. We're getting good stuff done and we've got enough people that when that person gets burnt out from trying so hard to find acceptance in their performance that inevitably they fall off the perch and can't do it anymore, there's somebody else coming up behind them to fill their place. Because it's become so much about this machine of, of church and you know, getting the service done and getting this and building this and growing this and doing all this sort of stuff. And it's using people to try and advance not necessarily the kingdom, but just trying to grow the church or grow, you know, Sunday service gatherings. Uh, and yet people are, are they're being mistreated in that process. And so for me, like when I came across that teaching, I'd already kind of gone through a journey organically with God myself to kind of free me from some of that performance stuff. But it's like, man, I want to make sure we don't have that even in our culture, that we don't create an environment. And um, I know I've told the story before, but uh, Carly and Brad have been with, with us for many years, but it was early on, um, and, and Carly put her hand up to do catering for a conference that we're doing, and uh, <clears throat> then she had had her first prayer ministry session like a couple of days before the conference, and then she came back to us. She's like, um, I know I said I was going to do the catering, um, but I, I discovered I was only doing that out of performance orientation, um, because that's kind of, that's how I feel accepted and feel belong and all of this sort of stuff is by, is by performing and so I, I, I can't do the catering and, uh, and we rejoiced. <laughs> it's like, no, no, you, you being free is way more important than people being fed at some conference. Like it was, but, but that's this, the thing where you go, that was a good thing and I'm sure that served Kylie and others very, very well for many, many years and yet you come to this place of a revelation, but that's, it's not coming out of a healthy place. So I'm doing all of these good things from a, a place of brokenness. And when we do good things that aren't God things, that's called idolatry. So we're actually, we, th we think we're worshiping God, but we're actually we're worshiping ourselves in order to get, like that's what you do in idolatry. You, you do the sacrifice in order to get the reward from the idol. And it's, and it's an, a, a framework of idol worship. And that, again, is what happens in our hearts. That we are, we're prone to idol worship. Um, and unless we take 
a look into that place, then we can't actually dismantle the motivation. So Jesus is concerned about the why behind what you do. It, it matters to him. The Bible says, you know, man looks on the outward appearance, God looks upon the heart. So he sees the heart, he knows your motivation, but you might not see your own heart. So you actually don't know the motivation. So therefore, you're actually not fully worshipping and honouring and expressing that love gift, that fragrant offering to the Lord. It becomes like a kind of smelly, not so nice thing because you're actually using God to get something or you're using people to get something for yourself rather than being a free expression from a free heart of love to him. Does that cover it? Um, this could be kind of a silly question. I don't know. But, uh, <laughs> um, so you're talking about how they always believed that the heart was kind of like the brain, like they didn't know that the brain existed. So when it talks about the mind in the Bible, are they just referring to the heart? Or um, I think the biblical writers would in some ways. I think, again, how we separate and what we know today of like where our cognitive faculties are in our brain, all of those things, doesn't mean necessarily that they're disconnected or two separate things. Uh, I think I was saying to someone before, um, so our, our brain triggers trauma response. So there's two parts of our, our brain um, that react to, to a trauma scenario. So we have the hippocampus and the amygdala. So one is the memory storing of trauma and the other one is what fires off the um, flight, fight, fright kind of um, expressions in response to trauma. But they've done studies where in a, in a trauma scenario, in a triggering moment, the heart responds before the brain does. Um, and so we know again that they're, that they're kind of linked together and I think we have, you know, Jesus talks about discerning the, the thoughts and the intentions of their heart. And so again, uh, but I don't know, we're talking about the organ, like maybe it all, I don't know where the heart lives. Like is it here or is it down here, I think that's when, that's for me, I'm like, man, I, I'm a literal person. Give me a drawing and a diagram, Jesus. But I don't, I don't think it, yeah, it's, it's that kind of straightforward. It's all, all integrated. Um, so again, what they, I think their understanding of human anatomy um, and, and biology doesn't determine, or they, you know, we might have a different understanding, doesn't determine the intention behind, because they're not talking about, you know, the physical kind of components of stuff, but... Uh, yeah, is that is there? What was behind the the question? Was there more more to it than that? Or cool. This is more of a comment. Um, I have a brother-in-law who's in the medical industry, um, and he actually um, came across some studies that showed that people that have um, heart transplants actually take on personality and emotional you know thinking and everything of the person the heart that they receive yeah yeah and it's just you know like incredible yeah so there is a connection absolutely definitely. absolutely I've heard I've heard I, again this is one I heard but of a girl who had a heart transplant and then she started having memories of of a trauma and it was like ended up solving like an unsolved crime or something like that because of yeah these memories and things so yeah, it's crazy, mysterious. So there is, there is also some evidence that even the, the anatomy of our body kind of holds those things as well. So, yeah, it's spun out. Any other questions or comments? We love comments too, one of you. Oh, one there first. Um, I just had a question. You were talking a bit about straddling the difference between getting caught up in really nitpicking ourselves and that becoming what we're focusing on too much as yep. opposed to... So I know we didn't get into tools today, but I'm just interested in the practicality behind that. How do we avoid getting into this introspective spiral? Yeah. Again, it probably comes down to doing an investigation as to why we live in that spiral. I think different people would, would get caught up in that for different reasons. I think one thing is understanding, again, the foundation that our acceptance in God is, is done, it's finished. So me thinking about, oh, my bad has got upset with me is when we start getting into that because my behavior and my actions are now causing God to be angry with me. And I mean, that's uh, the years I've done that journey of like, I've messed up. You, you do it. Oh, I messed up yesterday and then I've come on 
you know, to church on Sunday, and then I'm like, oh, how can I raise my hands now? And, you know, God's probably, I need to grovel on the floor like the pitiful person that I am. Or, you know, we get in this place where our relationship with God ebbs and flows so dramatically based upon, oh, because I did the wrong thing or I didn't do the right thing. And yeah, I'm just not sure that that's how God views us and that's not how he relates to us. So I think we need to learn and grow and mature in our relationship with God to know when I mess up, it's for a reason, and I can look that thing in the face and say, God, we're going we're gonna to look at this thing. Man, I just lied to somebody, to somebody that I love and I cared about, rather than going, oh my gosh, I'm bad, so I'm sorry, God. I'm so-. It's like, God, rather than just apologizing and fretting about saying, hey, God, can we, can we look at this? Something's going on in my heart where I chose to lie rather than tell the truth, and that's something in my heart determined for me to do that. So I do think there is something where we can then just rest in God that we're not needing to fret and worry about it. Um, And I think then the more that we journey with God to understand ourselves, the quicker we get to kind of pick up on stuff. I go, oh, God, that's what it is. That thing's coming up again. And cool, I can let that go. Or I know know the tool to, to deal with that. It might be, well, I've dealt with the root. There's still some kind of residual fruit coming along. I know I need to pray. I know I need to get into worship. I know I just need to um, immerse myself in in those truths of Scripture. They're going to help me in that place. Um, But yeah, and sometimes it's just catching ourselves and saying, cool, if there's bad fruit, there's a bad root. If there's not bad fruit, I don't need to go searching and and discovering. And again, I'm not saying we don't. We, We should read the Scriptures and see where we're not like Jesus, and that becomes the thing that we then focus on. Say, cool, Jesus was like this, I'm not like this. Okay, Lord, we've got a journey to do to get me from where I am to where you are. Or, Jesus wasn't like this, and I'm very much like this. Cool, there's something that needs to go from my life. And so we can do that journey. So it's not, the introspection thing um, is when we start looking, trying to find all of our brokenness, rather than, setting our eyes on Jesus and saying, okay, what, who are you? what are you like, Jesus? So I'm reading the Gospels. I'm seeing this is who Jesus is like. And okay, I'm gonna, I know that's not in me. I'm going to go after that thing. Okay, Lord, would you form that in my heart? Would you, would you produce that fruit in my life? And I think that helps us to get our eyes off ourselves and put our eyes on Jesus. And we're pursuing him and his righteousness. Um, and then inevitably, that's when we'll see there's fruit in Jesus that's not in me or there's not fruit in Jesus that is in me. And I know to then look inwardly to deal with that sort of stuff. So, There was one more over here. Bless you. If you do need to go, it is 9 o'clock. Feel free to, uh, to leave. Bless you as you go. Here, white, white jumper. Um, I think you've actually um, partly answered uh, what I want to comment on. You're just saying um, doing good things that are not God things I get a little muddled with that. Sometimes the boundaries are a bit muddied when you feel you should, and yet is that just, am I being irresponsible if I don't, you know, go to the hospital or whatever? Could you just comment on Yeah. Again, I think in those things, learning and understanding the motivations of our heart, it's where we can struggle to set boundaries because we're setting a boundary of a good thing going to visit someone in hospital, of course, and there's an opportunity, especially I think if we're more pastorally wired, then it's like they tend to be the people who burn out on a relationship because everything that they're doing is good. And yet it can form, you know, people can have a Messiah complex, like, but if I don't, then what's going to happen? And what are they going to think of me if I don't do that? It's doing that kind of process to say, what's the motivation in my heart? And what's going to be the consequence if I can't do it or if I set a boundary, if I healthily care for myself? So I think the more, what we discover is the more that we get to know our internal world, we get to know our motivations, we get to know, oh, that's, that's that old way of thinking that's causing me to do that. But the more that I dig in and understand, then I go, actually, my motivation isn't, is actually out of brokenness there. I've heard stories of people like being, you know, the ultimate person, every pastor's dream, and all of a sudden they get healed and they leave the church because they, they recognize that all of the stuff that they were doing was just out of their, out of their brokenness um, or out of a place of, of, of sin. And so, again, it, it's important to, to understand if we're, if we're in our pursuit of Jesus and he calls us to sacrifice, but are we freely laying our lives down as he did 
Jesus said, no one took my life from me. I, I laid my life down. We need to be doing the same thing. Am I being sacrificed by God or am I laying my life down for him? Because there's going to be stuff that will cost us. We might be called to, to literally give our lives over for Jesus. But am I doing that out of a place of freedom? Um, or I'd be doing that out of this sense of kind of obligation, what's the consequence going to be? And I think that's where the more that God heals our internal reality in our heart, the more freedom that comes because he's, he's ruling and reigning in that place. And then we get to choose what we do out of a place of freedom. And that's really what I think freedom is not the ability to do anything. Freedom is the ability to choose what you do and when you do it and how you do it in obedience to God rather than having this kind of compulsion that I must do this thing and then feeling guilty because I'm not doing it. You know, Jesus only did what he saw the Father doing. And so if we're going to be living that kind of life emulating him, that's like, well, Lord, are, are you going? Then, then I'll go. But Lord, I'm tired today, but I know because you're saying, go, there's grace for me that will empower me to, to go and do what you need to do. Um, but Lord, there's an opportunity here it's like a saying, I think it's Bill Johnson says, you know, not, God doesn't want you to walk through every door that he opens. You know, not every open door you're meant to walk through. Um, I, I've shared with people before in, in that learning obedience of God. It's like if you're driving down the street and you feel like God says turn left, you're like you turn left and you're thinking there's going to be something to pray for, there's going to be a miracle, a sign, a wonder in the sky and there's nothing. And I remember thinking, I was like, God, what, what was that about? Like I, I obeyed you, but where was the fruit? And it's like, well, that was the fruit. That you, that you obeyed me. Like you heard my voice and you responded to, to, what, to what I wanted and that's, that's what faithfulness looks like and that's what he looks for in disciples. We're called to be faithful to God, not fruitful for God. Faithfulness is our responsibility. Fruitfulness is God's responsibility. That's in John, abiding in the vine. If you're faithful to him, he'll make you fruitful. But uh, I've said a whole lot of things. Hopefully something in there answered some of your question. But yeah, it, it's really, it's a journey kind of process of learning that, yeah. We'll do one more. Um, I've been part of a culture where if there's something wrong with you, you must be possessed. So I find this really fascinating. Um, what's the difference? How can you tell the difference when it's actually just wounds from your past or if it's actually demonic oppression? Yeah, <clears throat> great question. Very good question. Um, well, I think you don't, you don't immediately jump to either conclusion. Um, <clears throat> I think there certainly are cultures where everything is a, is a demon, and I don't think everything is a demon. Um, and I think there is also cultures where nothing's a demon, <laughs> when inevitably lots of things are. Um, so in, in the context of, in particular, a larger house and a prayer ministry kind of context, um, I've, I've been part of many times where people have been delivered from demons, what I learned through Elijah House was to recognize the importance of the legal system, the judicial system of heaven, essentially, of the kingdom, and to understand that if there is a demonic oppression, it's there because it has authority to reside. Because demons respect God's laws way more than people do, even probably Christians do. Uh, they understand this is how the kingdom works. We're allowed to be here because this person is committed a particular sin or a sin's been done against them so we can reside not every person who does that particular sin is possessed but you open a door for that kind of thing to happen um, but what we often find is when people they get to the root of what it is they repent for it if it's say it's a judgment against someone they repent for it immediately the legal requirement that that demon needs to reside gets removed and so then things just, the, the demon kind of goes without any sort of fanfare and hoo-ha and, and things like that. Sometimes it does, sometimes things manifest, but oftentimes it's almost like coming through the back door and, and unlatching that thing and saying, you know, kind of see you later. But I think a lot of times, yeah, there's people have, or people can manifest because of trauma and there's a demon attached to it, but the issue is you need to deal with the trauma that will then untie, you need to deal with a legal uh, system that's allowing that thing to reside. Otherwise, you're kicking out a demon that's just coming back again and doing that kind of process. Um, and that's where, yeah, people get kind of trapped. So uh, it's, it's in, in, a, in a journey with God, it's about discerning in each kind of scenario what that is. But oftentimes, like even for us on a, on a Sunday, sometimes we, we won't pray too much for somebody because it's like, actually, there's, even just in what you've shared, 
you've shared there's, there's probably more than likely a root system here. We're just going to pray a blessing and a covering over you, and then we encourage you to actually have a prayer ministry session which gives the time and the space for Holy Spirit to lead you to that place of what the root is and then with him partner together to, to step through the kind of legal requirements and, uh, and inevitably sometimes those demonic things leave. I've never been in a scenario where I myself have, have manifested demons but I've had encounters with God in prayer ministry where I've seen demonic oppression and and repented, renounced, whatever I needed to do in that scenario, and that oppression left, but there wasn't any manifestation necessarily. So, And again, when we talk about the spiritual realm, it's like we don't, it's not laid out in a nice mapped out kind of diagram, um, but we do know that there are, there are uh, tools that God gives in the scriptures to how to deal with those sorts of things. So. Awesome. Bless you. Let me pray for you uh, before we head off. Well, Father, we thank you for we thank you for the scriptures, Lord, that just retains so much life-giving truth, Lord. We thank you that uh, the, the finished work of Jesus is truly finished and has been applied to our lives. But we also thank you, Lord, that you have invited us on a journey of being transformed into your likeness, Jesus. I pray for each one here, Lord, and those who uh, had to leave earlier, Lord. I just pray your blessing and your covering over them, Lord. Protection over their minds and over their hearts, Lord. But also, Father, as we go away from this time, that you just begin to maybe awaken some of those areas of our heart, Lord. Give us whatever, whatever truth that you have revealed tonight, Lord. Let it sink down and find a place of residing in our hearts, Lord. Anything that was spoken that was not truth, Lord, we just ask that it would fall to the ground and, and not produce any fruit, Lord. Uh, but God, we are just on a, on a passionate pursuit of you, Jesus. We want to see you manifest in our lives. We want to see you manifest on the earth. We want to see your kingdom come and your will be done. But we just pray, Father, even for the next couple of weeks as we journey together, just that you will bring revelation, Lord. You will turn the lights on where they need to be on, Lord, and that you'll help us to awaken our hearts uh, to see you uh, so that we might be healed and restored by you that we might walk in that fullness of life that you promise. We love you, God, and we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. Awesome. Bless you guys. If you have any questions and things, maybe something comes up, if you, you can email kingdom, kingdom life at paradox.church, um, and we might get around to answering your email one day. But uh, yeah, bless you. Any more questions, concerns, things that come up, just get in contact with us. Uh, we're with you on the journey. So we'll see you next week.